Hello, I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to Rathbone's Look Forward series. During this series, we are speaking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. My guest tonight is one of Britain's leading authorities on artificial intelligence, Sir Nigel Shadbolt, to talk about the future of AI and its impact on our jobs, the way we communicate, our privacy, security and well-being. He's principal of Jesus College, Oxford, and founder of the Open Data Institute with Sir Tim Berners-Lee. He's also a professor of computer science at the University of Oxford, and his latest book, co-written with Roger Hampson, is called The Digital Ape, How to Live in Peace with Smart Machines. Sir Nigel, let's start, if we can, by defining what you mean, what one means by artificial intelligence, because I think sometimes people get rather confused as to the difference between algorithms, artificial intelligence and automation. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think even people working in the field sometimes get themselves tied up. In fact, one of the uh, early researchers, the man who gave us the term artificial intelligence in the 1950s, John McCarthy, he said, today's AI is tomorrow's computer science. So in a sense, it's always been a moving target. What we think AI is now may change. But generally, what we're trying to do is build intelligent programs. Those programs are sometimes inspired by how we think humans solve problems, but sometimes we're just coming up with smart engineering ways of solving a problem, applying something into the program that allows it to be adaptive to learn. So if we think of, say, Deep Blue famously beating Garry Kasparov, is that the kind of thing that is at the heart of AI, basically a machine that can learn? AI really has in a number of areas, superhuman levels of performance. And chess is a great example. For a long time, we thought chess was the preserve of human intelligence. How could you imagine a machine doing what it took humans so long to learn? But of course, yeah, as you say, 1996, 97, a machine beat the world's best player. Everybody actually then said the machines were going to take our jobs and wake up and become self-aware. That didn't happen then. But what we'd done was built an extraordinary specific intelligence for playing chess and it drew on lots of methods in AI from databases from smart understanding about how to evaluate moves in a game of chess and also just the blistering rates of increase in speed the real difference in 1997 to earlier generations of chess playing programs was that it could evaluate hundreds of millions of positions a second and that gave it an edge humans don't do it like that but the machine achieved a level of performance and it could in some sense improve as it went through the process of playing human individuals you touched on this slightly sort of dystopian vision of the future that AI tends to bring out in all of us. And there's been a lot of sci-fi about this as well. Mostly it appears that it's slightly negative in the way that it portrays AI. Mm. Do you think that it doesn't get a fair cop in literature? Well, it's certainly the case that Hollywood's robots are generally mad, bad and dangerous to know. Mm. I mean, they really are uh, uh, from Terminator 
onwards. There's always a thread, of course, even in Hollywood, of the redemption, you know, the kind of machine that saves its soul or, or acquires a kind of sense of moral purpose. Mm. But no, um, and even back, I remember being inspired to go into AI, partly when I watched the 2001, the great Stanley Kubrick film, and there the, the, the AI how is famously a bit mad, uh, goes mad. But nevertheless, the audacity of building systems that could behave like humans just, I think, enthralled me and a whole generation of people who went into AI back then. But in truth, there is in AI, like any of our powerful science and technology, a dual use, a dark and a light. We have that with nuclear, chemical, biological. For all of those areas of science, there's weaponization. There's using them inappropriately or for, or for bad ends. And I think that Hollywood has tended to pick up on that rather dystopian side. But there are a few counterexamples. Uh, Spielberg's uh, AI, David in AI, is kind of the child robot who, who becomes human in some sense. I don't think that's on the cards, by the way, but I would say that there's a much more optimistic way of understanding AI, and I think we should focus on that. I would like to go back and and I'll go forward and talk about things like weaponization mm. later on. But for now, I'd like to look at some of the practical day-to-day uses of AI, because, again, sometimes we think of this as something that's out there, like HAL, the computer. Actually, AI is being used every day by many of us now, isn't it? Absolutely, and it's been used for decades. Um, I went to study my PhD in AI in 1978. There was a Department of Artificial Intelligence, the University of Edinburgh was the only one in Europe. They were just about to try and close it down, actually, because they were claiming that AI had no future. Well, there you go. Um, But it seems that from the earliest days, AI has found a niche. Remember, AI Today's AI is tomorrow's computer science. So what we saw in methods such as so-called rule-based systems or expert systems was an attempt to take a piece of human behavior and turn it into sets of rule following. That first generation of systems was successful, widely deployed in everything from engine management systems through to financial dealing. We have been using the products of AI for decades. Most recently, in things like our phones, our mobile phones carries loads of AI research around from the face recognition to the voice recognition systems. And things like Alexa, Amazon's Alexa, these kind of PAs that we are now seeing popping up Mm. in our houses, that really is a new use of AI that many people actually see because it's become part of our lives. It has, and I think this whole emergence of what in the book The Digital Ape that we've just written is uh, this notion of new companions. Now, these aren't machines that are self-aware, but because of the convergence of number of capabilities, they are able to act, as you say, as our personal assistants. Um, in and we ways, give them names, don't well, we? That makes we it feel very names. different. Well, it's, humans are kind of just can't resist that. We yeah. anthropomorphize very easily. And I think... Um, whether it's your teddy bear or your favourite object from your childhood. You remember, we invest them with huge amounts mm-hmm. of emotions. How much easier is that going to be with our digital avatars? And therein will lie a challenge because we will become, I think, both socially and emotionally attached to these things. And um, there won't be anybody home in the digital circuits of the programme. I promise there really isn't an Alexa. But it will seem that there could be to us. And I think that's one of the interesting conundrums that we'll present is how will we deal with and uh, develop social norms to deal with these new uh, robot assistants. And just very recently, we had the issue of Google's uh, Duplex, which is uh, able to book up and make a hair appointment for you. Yes. Just explain a little bit about Duplex, something that actually has been in the headlines quite a lot recently. But for, for people who don't know exactly what it does, it's rather like Alexa, 
But a lot of people weren't aware that it existed. Well, it's an inevitable regression of these techniques. Once we have decent voice recognition systems that are able to understand what has been said, what has been requested, and come back with a formulaic task to enact, whether it's booking a, a hair appointment or whatever. And we've now got very, very high fidelity voice generation. It can sound utterly like a human voice because of the amount we've now understood about learning how to generate realistic human vocalizations. You put those things together with the ums and the ahs and the false starts that we all have in our conversation, and you will be fooled into thinking that is a human on the other end. And the question about this is, is that what we want? Should these systems say what they are and declare what they are? There's been quite a lot of pushback on duplex, an idea that perhaps people felt they had been duped by it. Mm. <laughs> yes. What do you think about that? Well, I think that, was, again, interestingly, these great engineering organisations who are pushing the boundaries of AI sometimes don't always appreciate the unintended consequences. And I think particularly around human sensitivities here, I think they would give them pause to think, ah, OK, maybe, maybe this is a bit spooky. Maybe this is a bit creepy. Maybe people would rather know when they're dealing with a human or a machine avatar. And I think that will start to become embedded in many of the rules of the road for how we deal with these systems. And we need to develop those rules of the road, and they'll be different in different places, interestingly. Are we in the wild west of this at the moment, in a sense that it seems like AI is leaping ahead, and actually perhaps we don't have the regulation in place, and even just the social mores in place to catch up with it? Well, wild west, or Klondike, or to infinity and beyond, whatever your kind of favourite uh, metaphor for this is, I think you're right, it's unexplored. It's new territory that is literally being formed in front of us. As that reality crystallises out, we will need to establish new conventions, new views, inject the system with values, much as we did, as you say, in the Wild West, you know, as in some sense, as, as the law began to assert itself and understand what was necessary, practice has changed. And they will change in this area too. They're, they'll have to. We talk an awful lot now in AI about ethics, uh, about codes of behaviour. And I think that's crucially important. I think I have to ask you here a little bit about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, because although it's not strictly artificial intelligence, I think a lot of people felt that idea of being duped, the idea that privacy was broken. And how does something that happens in that field impact on how we feel about everything from um, from Alexa to mm. what's happening in duplex to any form of AI when we think that actually we've given away too much and possibly when we didn't know we were giving it away? Yeah, I think it, there's an inevitable, very close association between AI and large data gathering exercises. In fact, modern AI is fueled quite literally by huge amounts of data that's collected. The machine learning algorithms that we now use require huge data sets. And the world that we've created, uh, in part by the actions of people who have given to the world things like Tim Berners-Lee's web, that's allowed us to collect and connect information at a scale we've never had before. And as we amass more and more, um, this is providing more and more material. And much of that material is stuff that we generate for ourselves. Given that today's smart processing algorithms or tomorrow's standard kind of uh, computer science in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised that this vast amount of data can be mined and analysed for deep insights about our patterns of life and our preferences. And we need to get ahead of that a little bit now and understand 
as both consumers and citizens what the data deal might need to be in this new world. What do we envisage AI becoming? Are we going to have artificial intelligence that passes, for example, Alan Turing's test? Yes, the, the Turing test... Alan Turing, a remarkable man, in fact, in so many ways, um, barely known outside of mathematics circles until the last decade or so. But his work in um, Bletchley Park with uh, decoding uh, and then his actually his pure mathematics as well, extraordinarily influential. But he imagined this thought experiment that if, you know, you were in one room, something else was in another room and you were passing just messages back and forth and uh, you couldn't tell from the questions you were posing and the answers you're getting back, whether there was a human or a machine in the next door room, that would be to pass the Turing test. It was kind of behavioral equivalence. Now, you know, if you think about that test a bit more, you know, I know lots of three-year-olds who probably wouldn't pass that test. And yet we would think of them as as, as generally human. Um, And I would say that in quite a lot of cases now, on that basis, we already have systems which pass the Turing test. That's why Google Duplex freaks people Mm. out. Uh, It's why our systems do. So the argument perhaps is that that's not necessarily the best test. We will be living in a world of lots of systems that appear intelligent. Absolutely. I'm very clear about the fact that we have not the faintest clue what it is to build self-aware, sentient uh, intelligent systems. Not a clue. We are building these fantastic task-achieving architectures. They will fill the world. We'll have great chess players, great language translators, great dot, dot, dot. When you put those elements together, they will appear intelligent, but... That's not the same thing as being self-aware or generally intelligent. The, the test of general intelligence, such that they appear to be able to answer any question you could give them. Again, we have a lot of that with systems like IBM's Watson, which is an extraordinary system that could play this uh, game show to, to, to very high levels. But in truth, that's an assembly of existing methods drawing on huge amounts of data that's available on the web and lots of clever algorithms. What's going to await us, I think, is a world... I describe this as not artificial intelligence, not that form of AI, but another kind of AI, augmented intelligence, a world in which our abilities are boosted by the presence of these systems and these algorithms and devices. That world is slightly different because it's a hybridization. It's a hybrid of human and machines acting together. Wow. Is this as big as the Industrial Revolution? Do you think that we're living through a period of that kind of intense change that's going to change our world forever? No question. I mean, it's a, in a sense, when people say, how are the rates of change? It's a bit like saying, you know, when did the web take off? If you take the first web server back in the day and then track its doubling, it was always doubling. And it just at a certain stage, it becomes noticeable and keeps on. So these rates of change that we've inherited uh, from the Industrial Revolution as we've begun to change our world... The real driver here, what I call these exponents of change, is the extraordinary gift that the electrical engineers have given us. They have doubled the power of our computers every 15 to 18 months for the last good number of decades, 40, 50 years. And that has just changed the game. It means that when we talk about exponential change, it's easy to say that. Imagine if air travel had kept up with the rates of improvement in our computers we'd be able to fly from here, from London to Sydney in a quarter of a second. I mean, you wouldn't survive it, (laughs) but that's the rates of change. And I think that means that even people in working in the field often are taken short by what's achieved.
Let's move on to talk about jobs, because it is probably one of the major issues that people come up against. As soon as they think about AI, they worry about their their jobs and more, perhaps, about the jobs of their children. Are jobs going to be at risk because of artificial intelligence? Some jobs will be, and I think that's a pattern that we've seen. If you go back to the Industrial Revolution, we don't quite have as many shepherds as we had. We don't have the tallyman. We don't have the whole professions that no longer exist. But what is also interesting is the rate of job creation. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics forecast a loss of 5 million or so manual jobs um, over a period of time. Looking back, what happened there, they've created 20 million new jobs. Well, how's that happened? Because the whole new classes of activity become valuable to a society, whether it's in social care, whether it's in travel or leisure. The rate of job creation often tended to be underestimated. And in this great, brave new world of robots manning various production lines, you'll need somebody at the end of the production line to buy the product. That individual require wages. We have been very good at inventing roles to pay people wages, to build a labour force. And, of course, my mum wasn't a search optimization uh, engineer. You know, there are whole new jobs we never even thought of. We've never thought of. What are the jobs that will go? Let's start with that. I mean, people are always worried that actually their jobs will disappear. Jobs like accountancy, doctors, lawyers. Do you think that that is also something that we need to be worrying about or thinking about? Well, I just think we'll see the um, dissemination of those white-collar capabilities just much more broadly with our, if you like, our, our AI. It's not that you will suddenly replace the doctor, but you'll have a, a range of frontline interventions which may be powered by, by intelligent algorithms. Things like um, radiography, where you're trying to interpret complex x-rays. A first set of screening might be performed by machines, but it turns out that even in cases where the machines do very well, there's a strong sense that people need to stay in the loop to validate and verify. There is now. Do you think that will change over time? Well, it's it, it turned out to be very resistant. I mean, 40 years ago, we were busy trying to build expert systems to replace GPs. Mm-hmm. There's lots of reasons why the sociology, the activity of going to your GP and presenting and being seen and assessed is still both a social and a knowledge-based process. Sitting down with your accountant and going through the kind of issues of what the challenges are about your tax return and the rest of it has a deep human and a contextualization, a dimension. The other thing humans are extremely good at is knowing what they don't know and the boundaries of their expertise. And this seems to be, again, something that we find quite hard to um, endow in our machines because they are task-achieving at what they're good at. So there'll be increasing automation. People talk about fleet truck drivers in the US, long distance, interstate driving. I could see some of that being automated. But then the job will change. And I suspect the people in those cabs won't disappear for a while. They'll be dealing with the reconciliation of the load and the order at either ends of that, much as a pilot negotiates the landing and the takeoff of, of an airline now. We have interesting ways in which we keep people engaged even in those activities where we imagine a large proportion can be automated. Let's talk a little bit about education and teaching. What role will AI have in our classrooms? After all, we want to bring up the next generation understanding probably more about AI than many older people do and also presumably interacting with it. Can it help to teach the younger generation? Well, certainly, the, um, again, the availability of just the online material on the web, so-called massive online courseware MOOCs, um, 
open courseware. This is available material from the best universities, the best schools that now is widely available to anyone. And, and this is, again, making the availability, the dissemination of this material much wider than ever before. There aren't these single kind of channels of delivery. But what we've noticed is just how fundamentally important the human teacher is in this. And if you wanted, to, if I wanted to bet against one place where we might suddenly decide it's a very smart idea to pack in more humans, it's teaching. It's the fact that education is a national level imperative. We need to invest a lot more in it uh, in tandem with our machines and our online material, we can achieve a lot. But I don't see the AI teacher replacing the human teacher. The human teacher is exquisitely tuned to noticing the particular individual challenges of a child learning. Again, not always intellectual, often social, often contextual. When we look at uh, inequality in the world and the vast inequality between countries, and you know, I think we all know that actually that has been it's a driver for many factors um, that are all relatively negative and we would like very often to try and balance that inequality how do you see AI's role in that is it something I'm thinking for example in teaching or medicine Mm. is it something that can help the poorest countries in the world or do they get even further left behind because they don't have that where does AI sit there I think again rapid advances in science and technology there's a whole line of thinking that people like Stephen Pinker and others who say the world is getting better. You know, the, the, all of the dystopian worries we have, when you look at everything from um, longevity um, to levels of um, uh, starvation, uh, famine, uh, health, the trends are all in one direction, mm-hmm. despite increasing populations. And in a sense, I, I feel it's important for us to be optimistic. It's not my job to sit around and moan. It's, I, I have the privilege of being in a situation where we can try and understand understand the benefits and the disbenefits. The problem often with technologies is the issue of, of where power and uh, decision-making resides. And uh, if you think of it in agriculture, agritech, the complaint has often been that the rich, in some sense, exploit the poorer nations. Will that be true in an age of, of AI and data? And I think that's certainly something we have to be aware of. It's a possibility that we could oppress rather than lift. But I think that people are increasingly alert to this. So Um, why some of us feel very strongly that things like net neutrality, which is keeping the web open for all to access and the internet for all to access equitably and at the same level is fundamentally important. And these things might end up becoming new kind of rights we want to fight for to give people parity of access. Could AI ever answer the, the big questions about the universe that certain scientists have spent their whole lives trying to solve? Well, only if we give them the questions to solve. (laughs) I mean, again, that's the important, uh, I think, lesson from AI is that all of the goals, all of the ambitions that we load these systems up with are ours. They haven't decided they want to pose Mm. this question. So the question is, can they help us discover, make scientific breakthroughs? And again, a long, long standing area of research in AI has been automated scientific discovery. And we've had systems for decades now that struggle to understand how you might do automated discovery in mathematics or in biology or other areas of science. We're going to see more of that, no question. Um, I think Again, I think the, the real breakthroughs will come with these, call them social machines, where you integrate human and machine elements together at scale. People working in cancer research, for example, now have access to data, uh, problem-solving um, uh, uh, computer software, 
which under their guidance can do extraordinary things. So they can search through the machines numbers of patterns, formulations, possible new drugs at a scale that no human researcher ever could. But to be harnessed, to look in the right place, and then to be able to evaluate the quality and understand whether it's um, a good insight, that is going to remain very much a human endeavour with the machine in the team. It's interesting because you seem to be, I think, rather optimistic about the, the jobs front and the idea that while things will certainly undoubtedly change. It's going to be a case of the very best AI will be about people and machines working in harmony. Yes, I do see it. I think that very strongly. And all the indicators in all of the modern scientific labs that I see, you know, we're taking more young engineers, more young biologists and physicists uh, from wider, more diverse groups into those laboratories. And they're finding themselves spending their time writing programs, working with programs. That's for sure. Every subject has a computational biology, computational chemistry element. But the people are still there. So what jobs would you or what's, what areas would you suggest that teenagers listening to this point themselves <laughs> in to make sure that they have a great future in the workplace and that they don't end up having a job taken away by uh, oh, artificial intelligence? Just do what you're passionate about. Honestly, I think that, that it may sound trite, but um, you know, what do we know that humans care about? Well, creative content. Now, of course, people will say, well, the programmes will be able to generate perhaps uh, novel forms or scripts or generate the CGI that's in your films. But all of that aside, again, the creative juices uh, that humans have, that creative spirit, massive area that continues to be important. Social welfare, science itself, do what makes you passionate. And one of those areas that's emerging, I'm glad to see, is a passion around what used to be a very kind of geeky and solitary retreat, you know, geeks in basement, you know, doing kind of programming. It's becoming something that people think is exciting. Rightly so, always has been exciting. And I think clearly we're going to see a lot more demand there for data scientists and AI researchers. A bit of vindication there for you. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on a little bit and talk about computers caring for people. This is the idea that robots take on some of the tasks that are very often quite personal and that we give to, we, we imagine, are done by sometimes people very close to us. Bringing up children, looking after babies, looking after old people, looking after people who are sick. What role does AI play there? Well, AIs can be infinitely patient. <laughs> Think of the situations. We're beginning to see this. There's always been a thread of uh, work in AI around, it's called AI and elder care. And particularly, we're an aging demographic, different parts of the world aging uh, slightly, of course, at the same rates, but have different populations at different stages in that. And one of the drivers, certainly for AI, is um, how to look after increasing numbers of people who need help and companionship. Now, in some people's minds, this is everything from you know robot assistants that can actually act as almost ward nurses through to the social equivalent of that kind of Alexa avatar that is sitting there having a conversation with you, talking about your early childhood, representing those memories. There was a very interesting uh, EU-funded uh, research program a number of years ago called Companions, which looked specifically at how these systems might work for people who are beginning to suffer from various forms of dementia. Mm -hmm. And we know quite a lot about what it is that helps and comforts individuals. And it's a tough call for human carers. So 
again, some way in which human and machine might support and, uh, each other in the task of, of caring and being a companion. But it, again, think about that. Within that context, there are dangers too. I mean, it might become just a little bit too easy for the humans to imagine they can withdraw not have to bother about paying a visit to the dear old nan or whoever. I mean, I, we, we want to be sure that we're not, in some sense, just, just offloading the problem. Mm-hmm. There are quite a lot of examples, actually, mm. there aren't there already, yeah. of where actually these are working. I think in, uh, in Japan there is a robot seal that helps people to feel socially Indeed, engaged. Yes, they, they stroke and cuddle. And it, and it yeah. seems to have quite strong beneficial effects, uh, much as we know pets do. I mean, there is uh, very remarkable stories about how the introduction of uh, actual living pets into mm. care homes or young children into care in, into old age homes makes a huge difference to people's well-being. Uh, and I can see our systems playing part role in that. That's, if you like, one end of life. At the beginning of life, we also will start to see increasingly the introduction of, of AI. Now, again, there'll be some genuine questions to think about quite carefully. Spielberg's film, Artificial Intelligence, or AI, uh, featured one of the most believable f- aspects of the entire film was this uh, th- super toy called Teddy. Now, yep. Teddy was stuffed full of AI. Um, it clearly wasn't the brightest and smartest of all the AI on display, but... That idea of companions, cuddly companions, the kind children identify with their toys and objects very early on, and we could well see these becoming important forms of, of friendship. What's that going to do to the way in which we think about uh, dealing with children when there is a, in some sense, a very authentic record of, of the child's early years? Children actually don't remember their early years. Imagine if it's caught or captured by such a system. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What social challenges come along with that? Indeed. I mean, that's an absolutely mind-blowing area to just look at for a second. If we just imagine a situation where most children in in this country had some kind of record forever Mm -hmm. of what happened to them in those early years, do you think that that is likely and if so is there a time frame for that kind well, of thing? Well it's entirely possible I mean we already have the capacity to record pretty well your entire awake lifetime experience mm-hmm. on, on the kind of devices we have sure. which is we're already, seeing more and more of that which is incredible because, already yeah. you know whether it's particularly interesting or whether you think mm-hmm. it's a good idea the capability will be there and so I don't think it'll be very long at all before uh, toys will start rocking up with these mm-hmm. capabilities but the is, question is do we think that's socially acceptable yeah. when are they switched off um, is it is it actually something we want to support? and I suppose what is the point of it I mean is it simply a, a record a kind of uh, extension of a selfie culture or are we actually talking about these devices mm-hmm. helping to bring up our children, helping to teach them or look after them? And that will be um, an entirely imaginable uh, context quite soon. And, and again, if you think about what's happened through time, the idea of the personal tutor, indeed in classical times, slaves were made mm-hmm. to do this. Now, a terrible thought, but in a certain sense, will these become the new kind of devices uh, subjugated to the needs of uh, their owners? And I say subjugated. Again, to be clear, there will be nothing at home in the head of the, of, the, of the child's companion, but the child might not see it that way. There was a fascinating story just recently of a uh, 
a funeral that took place in Japan at a Buddhist temple for 140 decommissioned Ibo robot dogs. Uh, you remember the little yes, cute dogs from about them. 20 years ago? Yeah. And uh, they were literally now on their last legs because they stopped producing them, sporting about 14 years ago. And so uh, they've been gradually been cannibalizing race parts. Owners took these dogs along and they were distressed. There were tears shed. The people had formed meaningful relationships with their faithful uh, robot companions. Move on, another... 10, 20 years, we will have more capable devices that will be embedded in our lives. So what will they bring to that relationship? I think quite a lot potentially in terms of um, helping, supporting, um, teaching, instructing. We talked about some of those, but it's not a surrogate for a human's love. It's not a surrogate. It's, 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 not, it's not the same as uh, an effective parenting or friendship relationship with a human being. But again, you know, we are kind of used to this. There was a survey done a few years ago on uh, the most important of, of, of young children's views of, of, of important um, features of their family life. And they were asked to just rank the most important uh, um, subjects in their families. And mums came up top, of course, as you might expect. And generally, usually higher than dads with the family pet. Yeah. And so there's we have this uh, in, instinctive ability to relate to objects and our AI devices will become those objects. The question for us will be um, how we put social norms and rules and regulations around that and whether it'll always uh, just be, uh, oh, let's use it and then work out the consequences. Generally with technology, that's a bad idea. It does a lot of good to think of the potential benefits and disbenefits before you flood the market with these things. So, for example, turning a, a, an AI object into something that's incredibly attractive either to children or to young people. You know, I'm thinking of a, a beautiful cuddly toy with huge eyes that's very easy to turn into, to imagine in your head is a real animal or a small baby or a person, um, actually may have ethical an ethical dimension that we really ought to be looking at before we find that we've got a generation of people who are in love with their dogs. Well, who are actually AI? Who are actually, uh, as opposed to, as opposed to I, real, real yeah, life I mean, pets? I, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think it's in some sense we kind of uh, prohibit that potential mm. because you know people um, will express themselves and their affections in all sorts of ways. But it is the capability is is on the horizon, so we should prepare ourselves. I mean, again, to give you a positive uh, spin on that, I mean, not, not as a child is growing up, but. We've always imagined, wouldn't it be wonderful to grow up in a multilingual household, perhaps be bilingual by the time we know that there's a particular stage where that helps. If your super toys are able to chat to you in another language, listen to your English, give you an appropriate response back in the other language, and our language translation is getting very good now, children will have that capability on hand, should we think it a good idea, universally and at scale in a way we never had before. There's another movie, a movie called Her, which was about um, someone actually falling in love with AI. Where does that go? I mean, that is a much more difficult sort of ethical area, but it is one that we probably need to think about and address. It's the idea that, you know, yeah. it's very easy to sit here and talk about the fact that these artificial intelligence objects do not have a brain and sentient feeling. But for a lot of vulnerable people in society and lonely people, actually, it's quite a difficult um thing to get your head around and it's a difficult line to draw particularly when they're made to feel so real well people and, and again studies that start to suggest perhaps people in certain emotional states 
spend more time online with their social networks mm-hmm. than than those who and it's are, a concern that we yeah. have a lot at the yeah, moment yeah, about yeah, people's yeah, mental yeah. health and and um, those are absolutely legitimate questions to ask I think I remember the her script very good of course the her herself uh, this AI operating system got eventually uh, very bored with the human interaction and <laughs> had to kind of go off and find itself a, a, an equivalent AI to fall in love with that won't be happening <laughs> but 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 the point you posited about people becoming very attached of course I mean that's the notion of a, a rich emotional engagement is an mm. interesting one um, there's also the challenge around these objects being used effectively as um, sex toys mm. you know this will be this is coming down the track already so uh, we need to be prepared for it what we have to kind of imagine is is that it's really important then for the human subject to understand literally the limits of what's on the other side of the mirror. And I think that's why, again, it's so important that these things declare themselves and that we don't spend all our time having them try to deceive us and be deceptive or um, engage us in a way in a game of... uh, imagine me to be more intelligent than I am or self-aware. The reason we fall in love, we just believe we, there's, a, there's a reciprocal, there's, there's a human agent, there's, a, there's, there's an individual mind inside the other person. Mm. And part of that is about your sense of self goes out to that other person. So we need to think pretty carefully about situations where we found people making this category error about the software system. And where do we, where does this go in 20 to 30 years time in the way that we've accepted so much technology into to our lives in the last generation. Do you think that robots will just be a part of our daily life and we will not be? We'll have answered a lot of these questions and they'll be useful for us overall. Well, I think we have. I think that's exactly right. I think we already speak to our phones in a very unremarkable way and we ask Siri for advice about this and that. We're not at this stage generally making a mistake that there's a a developed uh, personality behind that. But they're kind of indispensable objects and we treat them for what they are route navigation, aid, uh, uh, um, uh, recommender systems for films and food and restaurants. And they've just become part of the backdrop of our lives. They will become more dispersed, more ubiquitous, both more remarkable and less remarkable. I mean, the thing that's very remarkable about our own attitude is as we deploy this technology, it rapidly recedes into the background of assumptions. Had you presented the capability on the phone in my pocket to me as a young AI researcher 40 years ago, I simply would not have been able to believe it in a sense. Even with all that audacity, I'd have thought, well, you know, how have we made such progress so fast? But now it's it's a part of our everyday life. So in the years to come, I see that extending. We will just have, I think, a federation of these uh, brilliant systems, which when put together, will just introduce some of the challenges we've been talking about earlier. When we look at... Uh, the idea of security. It's something that I think probably is a little bit further down the list of what some people consider the dangers of AI, the way that people think their jobs being taken away from them is incredibly important and incredibly worrying. But then when you hear that Vladimir Putin has said that the leader of AI will be the leader of the world, it does give you pause for thought. Is this something that we're not spending enough time on thinking about and worrying about globally, is it true that whoever controls AI controls the world? I think it'll be um, important, as I've said, to understand that computing in general and AI in particular is a dual-use technology. That is, it can be used for 
peaceful applications or aggressive applications. Just as biological science was subverted into biological warfare, chemical into mustard gas, nuclear into weapons of mass destruction. Currently, there is undeclared war between nation states in the cyberspace, a bit like white-collar crime, because we can't quite feel it and see it. It just goes on. On a daily basis, attacks are coming in onto uh, states' cyber infrastructure. That just can't continue. We've got to grow up as nation states and recognise that we've got to put some self-limiting ordinances on this. Um, Do you think that uh, the allegations about Russia interfering in the US election and to a lesser extent in the Brexit vote. Do you think that that has actually focused a lot of people who before hadn't really looked at this area onto the idea that actually this war, as you talk about, between nation states actually had some real repercussions, potentially had real repercussions if those allegations are true? Yeah, I mean, I, and it, well, if, exactly so. I mean, it's interesting that it took uh, in potential uh, or alleged interference in electoral process to really get people... Um, uh, paying attention to this or indeed the fact they may have been manipulated themselves by being exposed to various information that was uh, not what they thought it was or from where they thought it was. Denial of service attacks so-called. Remote computer will issue millions and millions of instructions and and to another computer to try and essentially clog it up, seize it up. Been going on for decades. It's potentially just as injurious as any other kind of manipulation. This world that is that we're forming, this world of cyberspace and where the cyber connects with physical reality, this controls everything from our lights to our water supply to our electricity to our logistics. And we're busy developing the capability to attack each other's ability to keep those systems running. You take those systems down in a city like London, you have chaos pretty rapidly. And in the same way, we'd think that unwarranted interference in the physical world is something we would want to rule out and limit. We need to do something similar in the cyber. Now, there are various kind of proposals on the table. The presence of AI in this makes some of these questions, I think, brings it into even sharper relief. Why is that? I mean, I, there's a couple of questions that mm. have, have leapt out at me as you've been mm. talking. One of them is, where do we stand? Where, do, where does the UK and Europe and the States, United States stand uh, in terms of how far ahead they are? Is China, who I know wants to be at the very forefront of AI, is China at the head of this race? Where are we in a way that perhaps that we would understand, <clears throat> we would understand a lot more about the economics um, of yeah. uh, comparatively between countries. And I suppose the second thing is, how is AI going to change all of this? Well, in terms of every aspect of economic growth, of course, China is an extraordinary emerging force. Mm. That's the same in manufacturing as it is in, is, is in computing. The fact that different states now want to lay claim to their ability in AI is interesting. It's been one of the kind of really noteworthy features of the last couple of years of this debate. People talk about sovereign AI capability, you know, how strong, how good is our AI in the UK compared to other states. Mm -hmm. We've been in the research game in this area for a very long time, as has the US, European states. So we do have a lot of consolidated capability. In a sense, uh, places like China have been busy catching up and equipping themselves with the capability and huge potential additional investments. That's where the worry is about the sheer amount of resource that can be applied to these areas um, by, by countries like China. And will that Will that make for um, a very different um, balance? 
there's two responses to that. One is that a lot of science and technology proceeds in an area of open peer-reviewed research. So that is to say the results are openly shared amongst scientists and engineers. And lest that sound too kind of utopian, it is it actually how an awful lot of research happens in everything from life science and biology to climate change. And um, there have been some kind of very significant areas where in AI, um, the push is to make both the algorithms and the data as open as possible for sharing, for, for, for development by researchers. Because that won't run everywhere. And you can imagine that um, in certain areas and applications in defense and military context will yes. be one of them. So take the specific example that has agitated people, is pilotless aircraft or drones, you know, yes. putting AIs on these systems. And the question there is, do you take the human out of the loop? These kind of terrible phrases like out of the kill chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you give autonomy to the system? And there is clearly serious reservations about that, both at the public, political, and indeed in, even within the military about this. That's going to be a key debate in the next decade. But, and in the way that we have had uh, nuclear treaties and uh, treaties about weapons of mass destruction, do you see this as another area where we really need to get round the table and say, for example, a war that was committed, if you like, by by, by drones with people out of the kill chain is simply something that goes along, it's along one of those lines. It's something that we must have an international treaty to say that we can't do, won't do. Well, and there are proposals, there are groups who are arguing for just that, colleagues of mine, researchers who are thinking that is exactly the right way we should be going to have, uh, in a certain sense, prohibitions. And you may be aware that, again, groups of scientists within um, organisations like Google are saying they're not prepared to work on certain sorts of project now you know that's where workforces make their own decision whether companies do whether nation states can come to that agreement i think that is absolutely uh, where we need to apply some diplomatic focus yeah and actually i was quite heartened by what you said you look at think of things like climate change there must be an awful lot of people who are working at the very top of their game in this area i include you mm-hmm. in that of course and are actually thinking well you know, this isn't a nation state issue. No. This is something where if the very best and most interesting people I want to work with happen to be in China or in Russia or anywhere in the world, then we want to work together. I mean, is this not an area, I don't want to sound too naive or utopian, but isn't this an area where perhaps because it's such a groundbreaking area, we can decide that we're not going to be quite so hemmed in by nation yeah. states? We can make common cause on it. And we will admire the best programmes to come out of one lab over another. And we will look to emulate. You know, I'd like to think of us having a race to the top rather than always a race to the bottom in its use. So, uh, yeah, and and in healthcare, in areas like application, as you say, to the big problems that face it, I actually do think that in that sense, we need our advanced AI to solve the problems that do confront. Now, people say AI is an existential threat to human beings' future that will all be put out of jobs and purpose by self-aware AIs. It's not artificial intelligence that worries me half as much as natural stupidity. So I'd much rather we think... You mean the natural stupidity of people? Exactly so, yeah. Our our, our inability sometimes, not not we're all capable of not always seeing the consequences of of, of the technology, doing a little bit of thinking in advance. My best example of this is something that UK did very well, and I think this is somewhere the UK can do well in the future, was the Warnock Commission. The philosopher Mary Warnock was commissioned and set up to 
bring together the best brains from philosophy, from science, to think about the consequences of what would happen with an area of science that was very fascinating. This was human embryology and fertilization. That authority that was set up has helped guide the UK through really difficult challenges and questions around the emergence of this new technology in advance of those actual breakthroughs happening. We need something similar in the area of AI and uh, the application of data. And I think the UK is in quite an interesting place where it could begin to talk about benevolent AI, to talk about AI used in a way that is not oppressive, but actually supportive of individuals and, uh, and groups. Well, you sound like just the man for the job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly something that, again, uh, um, we argue for in the Digital Ape. It's, it, it, that, that book considers quite hard where the choices are. People will often respond to this technology as if it's all going to happen. We're powerless. We have agency in this. We can make choices. When people vote with their mice about whether they will or won't use this service on this social network, they listen. And sometimes it's a matter of getting the arguments out there in advance of all these uh, problems emerging. Overall, are you optimistic about where AI is going to lead us? Yes, I am. But I think it's eternal vigilance. I think it's now so uh, clear that we will be thinking of as many beneficial uh, aspects, but also the unintended consequences. They will often take you by surprise, but we can imagine where, as we talked about in these conversations, where, where this is going, we need to be vigilant. The capacity for us to, um, to make a mess of it should not be underestimated. The capacity for greed or the desire for power to use technology to oppress people should not be underestimated. But that's when I think we can take a view that the values that we believe in, that we want to believe and cherish in this country and in democracies around the world, make the technology accountable and make it work for us. And we, what we haven't perhaps discussed enough is the issue about how the technology has tended to enrich and empower very small elites. Mm. So it's not about the AIs taking all of the power. It's about the concentration of power within relatively few hands, many of them a particular generation. We and they need to be sure that they're made accountable and that in some sense they are thinking about a wider public task, not simply the creation of huge wealth inequalities between groups of people. <laughs>